All right, if you want to make your way back to your seat, and uh, as you get settled in, if you want to open up your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of that chapter, and uh, where we are in Hebrews, this is the last chapter, Hebrews 10, is the last chapter where uh, kind of the dense, like, theological part of Hebrews gets wrapped up. The author makes his kind of final comparison of how Jesus is better than these Old Testament depictions or Old Testament aspects of religious practice and uh, belief and action. And so that conversation is about Jesus as the perfection of the sacrificial system, how Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is better than any of the sacrifices that were offered at the Old Testament tabernacle or temple there on the altar. And he's going to jump into kind of the comparison contrast there in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, but he starts in a little bit of a different place. He starts with the discussion about the heart behind or that kind of bolsters or supports those sacrifices. For those in the Old Testament, the Israelites, one of the common refrains throughout the Old Testament is that their worship, their sacrifices had become just kind of empty religious acts, that there was no heart behind them. And what we're going to see in Jesus here in these first 10 verses is a picture of something different, both a model of something different, but also the perfection of that. And then the author will go in over the next couple of weeks to talking about the actual act of the sacrifice. And so, um, We're going to work our way through that. Here's the ending point this morning. It's this, that wholehearted acts of obedience set into the hands of the Lord have huge impact. Wholehearted acts of obedience set humbly into the hands of the Lord have huge impact. One of the reminders that we've been giving as we've worked through the book of Hebrews is that the author wants to show that Jesus is, he's better than anything else. He's the fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament was pointing toward. But he's not saying that everything under that old covenant was bad or was somehow wrong. And so here's a a quote from one commentator about this. And he says this, the author of Hebrews, however, does not see the contrast in a good versus bad way. Although he draws necessary and sharp distinctions between the covenants, he does not want his readers to despise the old covenant. Rather, he contrasts the two to show how the old one cries out for and finds fulfillment in the new one. The old covenant prepares the way and ultimately reveals our need for the new. One of the things I hope we see this morning is that if they had been approached with the right heart, These sacrifices and these Old Testament acts actually should have been something that increased Israel's longing for Jesus, for the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And so we'll work our way through that, but let's pray, and then we'll jump into the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 10. God, thank you so much for this morning, for the chance to come and to worship you. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning, God, that we would be expectant Lord, that you're going to meet us here, that when we come to worship you, whether that be corporately as a body or when we open up your word, God, that you are near to us, that you meet us in that place. And so, God, would your Holy Spirit move among us this morning as we sing, as we interact with one another, as we open your word. 
God, I pray that your spirit would open up our ears and our minds, Lord, so that we hear your truth. I pray that your spirit would open up our hearts, God, so that uh, he can take the truth of your word and press it into our hearts, God, displaying for us uh, where it is that he might want to encourage us or challenge us, where he might want to convict us, how it is that he might want to transform us, Lord. And would he also simultaneously fill us with the faith necessary to be obedient to that and to walk forward. Uh, God, you, you meet us. You are with us in the presence of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray over the course of this morning that uh, you would show us by your Holy Spirit, what it would look like in our own lives for us to take wholehearted steps of obedience, to set those humbly into your hands and trust that you will do uh, far more than we ever would have imagined through those things. God, would you, would you show us that this morning? Would your Holy Spirit speak truth to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Start with the first four verses. If you've got a Bible open, you can follow along with me. It says this, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." The first four verses are mostly a reminder of what the author of Hebrews has already said. Uh, In the first nine chapters, he's spent a lot of time working through some of the truths that are here in these first four verses, but by way of just kind of refreshing ourselves, here's what the author of Hebrews has laid out about Old Testament sacrifices, Old Covenant religious acts. They could not perfect the worshiper's conscience. That was something that was said in chapter 9. He brings it up again here in Hebrews 10, verse 1. The reality of one's guilt was ever before them. They would stand outside the Old Testament tabernacle knowing that they could not, because of their guilt and because of their sin, go into those holy spaces and stand before the Lord. They couldn't do it. They were guilty. Their conscience was not clean. And no Old Testament sacrifice could cleanse them to the point where that was possible. Someone else, one of the priests, had to be ritually cleansed, offer sacrifices for themselves, and then one person and one person only could go into the holiest place and offer a sacrifice, literally stand in the presence of the Lord and commune with him. Their guilty conscience was ever aware of that. Number two, old covenant sacrifices delayed the wrath of God's just judgment for sin. You can jot this down and go look at it later, but Romans 3, 21 to 26, but specifically verse 25, makes this statement and paints this picture very clearly, that God in the Old Testament, by the sacrifices of the old covenant system, was choosing to pass over sins previously committed. That when an Israelite person brought their sacrifice there before the Lord, they could not completely atone for sin that existed in them, but God would view that sacrifice, and in his grace, and in his mercy, in his patience, and in his loving kindness, he would choose to suspend his just judgment. Put it on the animal. The blood of that animal suspended God's 
wrath. Under the old covenant, sacrifices provided a suspension of God's judgment. But under the new covenant, the sacrifice of Jesus provides eternal redemption. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but that is the key. We typically think about God in the Old Testament and we picture him in his wrath and in his judgment. And it's at times, if, if we're not being intentional, it's hard for us to think about God in the Old Testament being gracious, and kind, and patient, and having this loving kindness. But the sacrificial system is actually a picture of that, that the Israelites could bring their sacrifice there and God in his grace and in his patience would suspend just judgment by those sacrifices. Here's another one. Old covenant sacrifices offered a reminder of the reality and the consequences of sin. That's Hebrews 10 verse 3. There's a reminder year after year of the reality of sin and its consequences. That's one of the biggest benefits of the Old Testament, Old Covenant system. When you sinned, there was no choice but to find the correct offering and take it to the altar give it to a priest who would take that lamb or that bull or those doves or that grain or whatever it was and perform the ritual that needed to be performed. And when you read through Leviticus or you read through Deuteronomy and you see those sacrifices spelled out or you read passages in the narrative portions of the Old Testament where the Israelites are undergoing these acts of worship, they are bloody affairs. Like they're, they're just pouring out the blood of bulls. They're spilling the blood of sometimes hundreds of animals. And it's a reminder, a visual reminder that there's the consequence of sin. That when we sin, there is a debt that must be paid. And that debt, God has said, requires blood. And so you took your offering and ever before your eyes was the reality of your sin and the reminder of its consequences. And on this side of the cross, that reminder can be difficult for us to keep in mind. We don't have to take, you know, we don't have to come in here on Sunday mornings and, you know, bring with us like a small barnyard worth of animals in order to be sacrificed here up in the front. Instead, we come here and we, you know, we stand both, you know, figuratively, but also in this particular sanctuary, literally before the cross. And there's the reminder that our sin is real and it has real consequences. And in Jesus, God hasn't just suspended judgment. He's held out for us eternal redemption. And yet it's easy for us, this side of the cross, to whether live in a pattern of sin or have an isolated act of sin and just kind of try to push forward like it's no big deal. And in the back of our minds, we kind of know like, yeah, Jesus died for that. But to be gospel-centered is to get hardwired into our hearts or, you know, baked into the very fabric of who we are, the reality that the cross is ever before us, that Jesus sacrificed there is the reminder, the reality of sin and its consequences of the holiness of God and who he is, but also of the glory of God in giving his son on our behalf to bring us redemption. It was a good gift of the Lord under the old covenant that Israel had to take these sacrifices, both because there was a means by which in his grace he would suspend judgment and because it reminded them of the reality of sin. Those are good gifts. And then last, Hebrews 10.4, those old covenant sacrifices could not remove sin. They could provide temporary atonement for acts of sin, 
But what humanity needs is something much deeper than that. We must be cleansed from the condition of sin. We are mired to our very core by the stain of sin and we need cleansing to the same depth, something that can perfect our conscience, something that can purify us at the deepest level, something that not only would provide a suspension of judgment for an act of sin, but give us eternal redemption from the condition of sin. We have that in Jesus, but the blood of bulls and goats could not provide it. And then the bigger picture here is that the rote act of performing Old Testament sacrifices was never the means by which those sacrifices were to be effective. It wasn't just that you know, you'd kind of mindlessly or in a cold and detached manner bring your sacrifice there to the priest and kind of stand there like, hey, can we just get on with it? You know, do the thing you need to do and let's all move on with our day. There was supposed to be this heart that upheld those actions. See, God's never been interested in cold, detached, empty religious action. It's not merely the spilling of a bull or a goat's blood that was to make an Israelite person right with the Lord. The act was to be paired paired with a heart that understood the weight of sin. That's why you needed the reminder. The glory of God's holiness. That's why only one person could go in. And the grace of God in providing a means for atonement. And without that heart, the sacrifice was an empty act. On this side of the cross, we talk about the Lord's insistence upon having, you know, our heart that you place your faith in Jesus and you get a new heart, one of flesh rather than one of stone, the old heart gone. You get this new heart that's filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's what the Lord has always been after, hearts that are his, humble before him, longing to be obedient to him. Those in the Old Testament were saved by a forward-looking faith, a faith that saw the grace of God, looked forward to the day when their sins would be fully and finally forgiven. If you've ever asked yourself, how are all the people in the Old Testament saved? They were saved the same way we are, by faith. The grace of God. And then they would look forward in faith. And they didn't know that they were looking for a man named Jesus. They just knew that God had said that there would be this Son of man who would come and provide ultimate final forgiveness for them. A Messiah would come. They're looking forward to that. On this side of the cross, we look backward to Jesus. And by God's grace, through faith in him, we're saved. These sacrificial acts were to be demonstrations and pictures of that faith. Unfortunately, the heart could get lost in kind of the routine of that. And what remained was merely the act itself. And the Old Testament is full of the reminder that God has never been interested in that. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention or to listen is better than the fat of rams. From Psalm 51. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. From Isaiah chapter one, verses 11 to 13. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offering. Jeremiah chapter 7. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. However, I did give them this command, obey me and then I will be your God and you will be my people. Hosea chapter six, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In Micah, chapter six, verses six to eight, Micah offers some uh, like rhetorical questions back and forth. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my own body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you what is good. And what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. What the Lord has always been after is a state of the heart, not just these religious acts. What do I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before him? Should I come with a burnt offering, with a year-old calf? What if I came with a thousand rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? What if I brought the most precious thing I have, my own child, and offered that for my sins? Would that be enough for the Lord? And Micah says, no. He's told you what he wants from you, and it's a state of heart to act justly, to love faithfulness, faithfulness to him, to walk humbly with your God. These Old Testament sacrifices They were supposed to be shadows, that's what verse one says, of the ultimate good thing to come, and that would be Jesus. You sit down at a restaurant, picture your favorite Mexican restaurant. You sit down, they give you the menus, got some waters on the table, and then they slide in a couple of baskets of chips and salsa. That's supposed to be an appetizer, right? But if you're like me, you lack all self-control. And so before you even pick up the menu, you put down one basket of chips. And then your waiter or your waitress comes back over and says, are you ready to order? And you say, no, but I would like another basket of chips. So they put another one down. And then they come and they take your order. And you order fajitas or tacos or a burrito or something like that. And then they ask you the quasi-judgy question, do you want another basket of chips? And you say, yes. I do want another basket of chips. And by the time you've worked your way through basket number three and they actually set the food down, you're looking at a burrito that you have no interest in eating now because you filled up on chips. You made the appetizer the main thing when what it was supposed to do was whet your appetite for the real thing, for the actual meal. Picture like you've been in the desert for a few days. You're getting dehydrated to the point where your very life is at risk. What you need in that moment is not someone to hold up a picture of water and say, wouldn't this be nice? You need the real thing. This old covenant system, they were shadows, pictures of a real thing that was supposed to cause the Israelites to crave. It was supposed to feed this faith and this fuel in their heart that one day God was going to provide the actual thing for them the actual fulfillment, and then there would be atonement for their sin. All those promises that we saw in Hebrews 
chapter 8, they would be taken to be God's people. He would write their law on their hearts. They were supposed to crave that. Instead, they just kind of filled up almost mindlessly on the actions. We'll just do the sacrifices and that'll be enough. Instead of hearts that craved the reality, they had hearts that were cold and detached and just kind of tried to settle for the shadows. But then Jesus comes and watch this, verses five through seven. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. This is a fascinating little three-verse section of scripture. What you have here in the second half of verse five and then all of six and seven is a, uh, a paraphrase of a Greek translation of the Hebrew from Psalm 40. So there's a lot there. Uh, if you were to flip to Psalm 40 in your own Bible and line up the two passages, you would see that the substance is there, but there are some differences in the exact wording. That was a pretty standard way uh, in you know, antiquity here that people would reference or quote something. And so it happens multiple times in the Bible that we get a reference to a previous passage in the Old Testament that's not word for word. So that shouldn't throw us off. Here's what we should take away. Psalm 40 is a psalm of petition and thanksgiving that was written by David. But notice what the author of Hebrews does with it. He puts it into the mouth of Jesus. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, the one who would fulfill those sacrifices, as he's coming into the world, he said. And then there's that quotation from Psalm 40 as the words of Jesus. That I could, I would, like if I had 45 minutes to just talk about how remarkable that is, that the Holy Spirit who is leading and guiding the author of Hebrews had him use the words that the Holy Spirit led and guided David to use in Psalm chapter 40 and put them into the mouth of Jesus. As if there in heaven, before Jesus is sent to the earth, the son looks at the father and says, you don't want sacrifices but you're giving me a body. You're not after sin offerings and sin sacrifices, but look, see, I have come to do your will, O Lord. That's astonishing. Something written thousands of years before the author of Hebrews arrives on the scene that was inspired and put into the the heart and the mind and through the pen of David. He then, the same Holy Spirit, takes and through the author of Hebrews says, That's like the words of Jesus spoken to the Father before he comes to earth. That's incredible. It's beautiful and remarkable. But what does it display for us? It displays for us that Jesus, the eternal son, knows and recognizes that empty religious ritual is not what God was seeking. You did not desire sacrifice and offering. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. It shows us that Jesus, the eternal son, recognizes that a body was being given to him in order that he might offer that body as the fulfillment of those Old Testament sacrifices. You prepared a body for me. And it also shows us 
the heart that Jesus comes to earth with. And it's the heart that God has always longed for. I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, five to seven, positions for us this conversation between Jesus and the Father. One in which Jesus says, I know that empty sacrifice is not what you desire. I know that you've given me a body for the purpose of offering it as the perfect sacrifice. And my heart is such that I long to do nothing other than that. To do your will. Send me, I will go. I want to go. I'm willing. I long to be obedient. And what does Jesus have in mind in that moment? Your salvation. My salvation. The glory of God expressed most supremely in the giving of the Son for the sins of the world. And he says, I, don't, I long to do exactly that. You prepared a body for me to go and do that and I don't want to do anything else. What an amazing little three-verse section of Scripture before the author of Hebrews jumps into an explanation of just how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was superior to any of the sacrifices made at the Old Testament altar, he displays how the heart of Jesus is the perfect model for what God has always sought from his people. The sacrifice of Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Covenant sacrificial system, and it's the perfect model of humble obedience and worship. That's what the old covenant sacrificial system was supposed to be upheld by. Hearts that said, we have faith. We long to do your will. We long to be obedient. We see your grace in these sacrifices, right? But it became empty. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of those sacrifices with the perfect heart that he models for us. See, it's not just that the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary, though that was absolutely crucial. It's not just that the sinlessness of Jesus was necessary, though that was absolutely essential. It is also that the heart of Jesus and his willingness was necessary for us to be cleansed from sin. That's a bold statement. How can I make it? Look at verses eight through 10. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. What's, the text just walks us through this perfectly. What was the underlying reality of the old covenant system what was just these kind of heartless religious acts of sacrifice that did not delight the lord and were not his desire that's hebrews 10 verse 8 what's the reality of the underlying uh thing that bolsters the new covenant system that's verse 9 that jesus would say see i have come to do your will and then verse 10 says by that we have been sanctified the will of God in the giving of his son and that the son would say, I'm here to do that and nothing else. The heart of Jesus is a necessary component whereby through his sacrifice once and for all, we would be 
cleansed. Our conscience would finally be perfected. Our sin would be fully redeemed and fully atoned for. Look at, if we just zoom out and look at all of chapter 10, verse one, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers. It can't. Chapter nine said the same thing. And then chapter 10, verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Appetizer, main course. Picture of water, actual water. That's what we've been given thanks to the willing, joyful, obedient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in that sacrifice, there is a model for what joyful, worshipful, God-exalting, God-glorifying obedience is to look like. Springs from a heart that cries out, I have come to do your will, O God. It issues forth from a heart that's been transformed into that state because of the sanctifying work of God's grace. As those who follow Jesus, we are to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And that absolutely includes our behavior, but it starts in our heart. It starts with changing us from hearts of rebellion and disobedience into hearts that say, we've come to do your will, oh God. All of our Christian activity is to be supported by hearts that long to be obedient, that have been transformed by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ and now long for obedience. When the gospel takes hold of our lives, we are ever transformed into the image of Jesus and it starts with our heart. We get hearts that ought to cry out, I've come to do your will, O God. And that means that we can take part in wholehearted acts of obedience, set humbly into the hands of the Lord and he could have huge impact through those wholehearted acts of obedience that as followers of Jesus, we set humbly into the hands of the Lord and he has huge impact. Hearts that cry out, I've come to do your will, oh God. You've got a little card in your bulletin. You actually have two of them if you wanna pull that out. And you should have grabbed a pen. I'm gonna explain this in just a moment, but let me give an example of what I'm talking about. I just heard this uh, story on Monday. It actually involves a woman from our congregation. She's a hairstylist. And a number of years ago, four years ago, uh, our church launched out a church planting team to Western Asia. And they're there right now sharing the gospel, planting churches among unreached people. That had just taken place. And this woman went to work, just a normal day at work. And uh, another woman sat down in her chair to have her hair done. And on the hairstylist's station there, there was a little Evangia cube. It's kind of like a, shaped like a Rubik's cube, but it's a tool for sharing the gospel. And they get into a conversation and the conversation's going along and uh, eventually it turns to an opportunity for this hairstylist to begin to share the gospel with the stranger sitting 
in her chair. And so she begins to share and it's, you know, it meanders and it wanders and it's a little bit awkward because that's how it always is when we share the gospel and it's difficult and it's challenging and she gets to the very end of it and she musters up the courage to say, have you ever placed your faith in Jesus? Would you want to do that today? And the woman getting her hair done stood up and turned around and gave her a giant hug and said, sister, I'm already a Christian, but I just got so much joy out of listening to you share the gospel that I didn't want to stop you. Gave her a big hug and said, thank you for boldly sharing your faith with a stranger. And they're kind of finishing up the transaction there. And as she's getting ready to leave, the woman who just had her hair done said, you know, interestingly, my husband and I, who's a professor at a seminary here in town, have recently felt the Lord calling us into cross-cultural overseas mission work. And the hairstylist said, you'll never believe this, but our church actually just sent a team to Western Asia to share the gospel cross-culturally. We did it with an organization called Avant. They're right here in town. You should call them. Maybe they could help you. The woman said, thank you. They went their separate ways. The next day, that woman calls Avant. Says, you don't know me. I got your phone number, oddly enough, from the person doing my hair yesterday. (laughs) But my husband and I are interested in cross-cultural mission work, specifically in India. And she thought maybe you could help. And they set set out on like a year, year and a half long process whereby they raised funds and were trained and were sent. And they are teaching at a seminary in India right now that sends out 30 to 40 church planters a year into India and Central Asia. Because one woman was willing to take one faith-filled, wholehearted step of obedience, set it into the Lord's hands, and just let him create impact. Oftentimes when we think about, you know, huge issues of faith or we think about or we look at people in the Bible and we see the things that they did, we think, oh, I could never. But the reality is that they led ordinary lives whereby they did ordinary acts of faith and then the Lord did extraordinary things. And if we would be willing in our ordinary lives to just take ordinary steps of faith, humbly set them into the hands of the Lord and trust the fruit to him, he will do extraordinary things. If only we would have a heart that says, I've come to do your will. I've seen the grace of God at the cross in Jesus Christ. I've received that. My heart's been transformed and I just long to do your will, oh God. In any of our life situations, to just be obedient. So you've got this card there in front of you. There's nothing, look, this is, this is regular card stock. There's nothing magical about this card. It's simply an opportunity for you to spend some time and to write something down. What would one step of wholehearted, faith-filled obedience look like for you? And you might immediately know that thing because you have felt the Lord prodding or pushing you in a certain direction over a number of weeks or a number of months. You might need to spend a little bit of time in prayer here and ask the Lord to reveal something to you. And it could be something very specific and unique to you. It could be that he's placed on your heart a specific person to share the gospel with. It could be that he's placed on your heart a specific step that you are to take forward. By all means, write that down. Or it could be that in reading his word and knowing who he is, 
you know in your own life that there are steps of obedience that you could take. Maybe that is steps forward in boldly proclaiming the gospel. Maybe it's taking a step towards seeking forgiveness or reconciliation in a relationship that's recently been broken. Maybe it's asking for help and taking a step away from sin and or addiction. Maybe it's an act of repentance or confession just before the Lord or before another person. Maybe it's getting involved in service or a particular ministry. It might be moving into a discipleship relationship, either on the side of the discipler or on the side of the disciplee. It could be getting regular about finding ways to engage the needs of our community. It could be taking steps forward in missions engagement, whether learning how to share your faith or going on a short-term trip. Or you might be like the woman who sat in the chair that day and have felt the Lord prodding you toward a longer-term commitment. It could be that your first step of obedience this morning, your first faith-filled step is to receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. To have your heart transformed from stone to flesh. To be made new. It could be something about the regularity of how you interact with the Lord, whether in his word or in prayer. It might have something to do with your marriage and how it is that you sacrificially lay down your life to love and to serve your spouse. It might have to do with your parenting and how it is that you're intentional in the discipleship of your children. It could be in a dating relationship, in the boundaries that you have or have not placed around that relationship. There are any number of things you could write on this card. Here's what I want you to do with it. Over the course of like the next song, um, there's just going to be some space. We're not gonna invite you to stand up and sing right away. There's gonna be some time at the beginning where there's just music and no one's singing. And this might feel a little bit awkward to you, but we're just gonna leave room for you to pray and kind of listen to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and do some business with God. And then I want you to take this card, whatever you end up writing on there, and I want you to put it in a place where you're gonna see it tomorrow. Whether that's tucking it in your Bible in the spot where you know you're going to be doing your quiet time tomorrow. It might be that you put it on the dashboard in your car. It could be that you put it on the mirror where it is that you're going to get ready tomorrow morning. The reason I want you to see it tomorrow is because all of us have experienced the reality where we made some commitment in our heart to the Lord on Sunday and then Monday came and we completely forgot it. I just want you to see it tomorrow morning as a reminder to take that one faith-filled step wholehearted act of obedience that you set humbly into the hands of the Lord and allow him to bring fruit to. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to do that in all of our situations, to faithfully and wholeheartedly and in a faith-filled way act in obedience to the Lord, trusting that he will bring the impact to that. He will bring the fruit to that. So, There's going to be some time here. It's just going to be the band playing. Uh, You can use the whole song. You can use the whole next 20 minutes if you want to, to spend in prayer, uh, to spend thinking about what that one step of obedience would be. Maybe it's just you spend this whole time wrestling with the reality of that prayer. I have come to do your will, oh God. That might be the case. We just want to provide some space. And then after this first song, I'll come back up and kind of guide us from there. I don't, know, I don't know what you wrote on your little card. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, but if you wrote something down, would you grab that? I just, I just want us to take a second. Uh, and I'm going to pray over these. And 
my first prayer is going to be that we would recognize in humility that what what we wrote on here, I mean, this little card like is totally powerless. Uh, our obedience ultimately uh, matters because it's glorifying to the Lord and because he meets us in the middle of that obedience and he does remarkable things in the midst of that. And so if you would just pray with me over this, Lord, God, we lift these to you and First and foremost, God, we pray that, uh, God, that we would not allow ourselves to believe that our obedience in and of itself is going to be the thing that creates huge kingdom impact the world over, God. But would you help remind us uh, in humility, God, that we set our obedience into your hands and you are the one that creates fruit from that. You are the one that creates impact the world over, far beyond what we would ever imagine, God. And so would you give us hearts that long to be obedient, hearts that uh, follow in the mold and the model of Jesus and just saying, Lord, we've come to do your will, oh God. um, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would empower us to walk full of faith, in a wholehearted way and to step into obedience in these things. God, just in ordinary, everyday acts of obedience, God, in humility, would we set those in your hands and lift them up to you? God, and we pray that you would do uh, just miraculous things through them. God, that people would come to faith through that, that there would be demonstrations of the power of the gospel through that, that relationships would be healed through it. God, that Uh, people would hear the truth of Jesus because of it. Lord, we we can't do those things on our own. We're not enough unless you come and meet us in that place. And so God, would your spirit empower our obedience, but would your spirit also create fruit from our obedience? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing a couple more songs. The next one is, is called I Surrender. Uh, One of the things I don't ever want us to do is allow our worship songs to make us liars. And so uh, the words of this are a powerful statement that we surrender ourselves to the Lord. And so uh, would this be a prayer of ours? Uh, Like a rushing wind, Lord, come and breathe within us. Empower our surrender uh, as we lift our obedience to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.